This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. G'day there. How's your day been? Yeah, mine's probably been the same. But seeing as you have bothered to go to your podcast provider and choose this podcast to listen to, I guess I'd better expand on the day at hand. So this is what I've found interesting in the last day or so. This is the Almanac Report on Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Hi there, and um, if you're tuning in, you're listening to whatever episode number this is of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. I came to a realisation a while ago, but I've only just sort of started with it now, that I'm absolutely kidding myself if I have any belief that anyone is out there listening to this program who doesn't know me personally or is absolutely bored shitless with their life and looking for something completely different. So I've given up on the pretense of programming. I mean, Christ, I'm into episode 190-something and... Not one of those programs that I've done have exceeded more than 40 listens. So trying to pretend that Thoughts from the Metal Cavern is going to be a massive, huge hit worldwide as to listening to what my thoughts are on whatever it is that turns on my fancy at the time is a complete and utter waste of time. This is why you are listening to me talk as I make myself my Tuesday afternoon coffee with the house being empty. So if you hear reverberations or doors closing or coffee machines going, that's because I'm making coffee. So that's basically where we're at. Who the hell cares what I think? Who the hell is going to listen to me carrying on about anything, whether it be cricket related or football related, or what kind of chip is best related, or anything like that, when they can get it from somebody else who actually has some knowledge on these subjects. So I'm going in a different direction. You're going to get me talking like this, talking about whatever takes my fancy, and not really even going to be bothered trying anymore to be concise, or to weigh up two sides of an argument. Because who the hell cares? Because no one's listening, Bill. So just do what you want to do. If you want to continue to do this podcast, just do it. That's what I'm doing. So that's what you're going to get. You know what took my fancy a little bit this week? The Queen dying. Not the fact that she died, because let's give it a fact, she's 96. Her husband died last year, her mother died a few years ago, and it was always going to happen sooner or later. The thing that got me this week about all of this is that photo of her standing in her drawer room and standing in her drawer room up there at Balmoral and waiting to receive the new Prime Minister. And then when the new Prime Minister of England came in, whose name I can't remember because... Who cares? She came in and shook her hand and smiled and did all those regal things that the Queen's been doing for 70 years. 
and within 36 hours she was dead. How bloody tough do you have to be to know? She had to know she was dying. She had to know she was close. But she still stood up there and performed her duties as is required by her and her position to greet in the new Prime Minister with a smile on her face all done up. And you could tell the first time you saw that photo, well, the first time I saw it, I knew I said, oh, she doesn't look real good. But I didn't know she was within a day of dying. And when I thought about that photo in the days afterwards, I honestly thought, how tough is this bird? How tough is she to have gone through all of that just for the fact that she had to perform a duty? Now, all through her career as the Queen, uh, she's done some marvellous things and she's made a few faux pas and as you will and most people think 25 years ago when it comes to that but overall and I think the reason that she's so highly respected and so highly thought of even by Australians who like me are not monarchists are not royalists and don't want the royal family to be ahead of our state that we want an Australian head of state and we want a republic and yet the Queen as a figure is still thought of so highly by people like me just for the way that she has held herself in certain situations through her life. And it was a remarkable life, and I'm not going to go into all that crap because, like I said, I'm not a monarchist. The fact we've spent five days now since she died and all Australian TV channels, have all they've been running is stuff about the Queen and we've got people over in England sitting outside Buckingham Palace saying, well... She's still dead. I know it's hard to believe, and I know it's even harder to believe is that Charles is now king, and even harder to believe Camilla is now the queen. But I don't know really where I was going with that point, but the point is all of that stuff that, I mean, the Australian TV networks have just gone too far with this kind of crap. It's ridiculous. But the respect that the queen was held in is what has driven all of this. It's driven... Albanese to give everybody a public holiday next Thursday in Australia whether you are a monarchist or not um, and I think that that's what's got me over the last five days it's still going to be probably for as long as I live it's going to be that last photograph that Queen Elizabeth II had standing in her drawing room knowing full well that death was upon her and uh, that for me is going to be the endearing image of her rather than any other image through everything else that goes on beyond this. Alright, so I'm now in the metal cabin. Coffee in hand. Very good. Hopefully the acoustics are better in here too rather than being out in the middle of nowhere in the kitchen. The last uh, episode that I did where I had the pretense that uh, anyone was really interested in listening to me, of course, was about five days ago after the first one day between Australia and New Zealand. And the way that that game went with Australia at different stages, looking out of it and then back in it and then out of it and then finally getting up and winning that game. Sometimes, who knows how. Well, there's been two games since and... <laughs> The differences in these games and the way that Australia somehow 
uh, recovered out of adversity are not remarkable, but beyond belief sometimes. Now, in the second game, Australia batted first again, uh, and we're in what you would call all sorts of trouble. One stage, four for 26, after Aaron Finch had made his second ball duck. Uh, Warner had gone for five, Lava Shane five. Bolt just ran through. Bolt and Henry are both terrific. And at five for 54, when Alex Carey went, there was trouble. Six for 103, when Glenn Maxwell went, there was trouble. Seven for 111, when Sean Abbott was out. Eight for 117 when Steve Smith got out. Now, Steve Smith had done what he had to do excellently again. He held the innings together. Knowing, playing like a test player in adverse conditions to reach 61 off 94 balls. And everyone was probably saying, oh my goodness, he's too slow. But Australia was 8 for 117. And New Zealand were basically going to win this game. Australia shouldn't have made more than 140 at maximum. But in those last 13 overs, Australia somehow managed to make almost 80 runs for those last two wickets. And 9 for 195 off 50 overs was well and truly overs for where they should have finished and was probably below par from what they needed. So the bowlers again had to do the job. Mitchell Stark was 38 not out off 45 balls. Adam Zamper again batted well after he did in the first game, 16 off 21. And then Josh Hazelwood beyond expectation, 23 not out of 16 balls. Who saw that coming? So what happened there? New Zealand had, unfortunately for them, once again bowled through their main bowlers and were left with uh, not the also-rans really at the end, but certainly uh, not the strike bowlers that they would have been hoping for. And so that allowed Australia to build that innings in some relative comfort. And the New Zealand bowlers probably changed the way they bowled to the tail again, much like Australia seems to do a lot. Anyway, the bowlers that did the job that the batsmen couldn't, they played sensibly where the batsmen showed no patience and no uh, no desire to build an innings. And yet the bowlers did that to get themselves something to bowl at. And then bugger me, they did. All out for 82 New Zealand of 33 overs. At one stage, 5 for 87, and looking like they were going to get their lowest one-day score ever. And who were the stars? Everybody. Stark got 2 for 12 of 7. Hazelwood did nothing. Sean Abbott bowled 5 overs, so 30 balls, and 29 of them were dot balls. He only went for one run, and it was off his 28th delivery, I believe. 2 for 1 off 5 overs. Now, he wasn't bowling hand grenades, but he's bowled at the stumps and didn't give any width, so the New Zealand batsmen couldn't do anything. And then that drew the frustration out because then Kane Williamson at the other end, uh, to Adam Zampa, got a fully from Adam Zampa and tried to smash it over the fence and missed it and was out LBW. So the fact that Australia bowled so well and the New Zealand batsmen just didn't know what to do, except for that little partnership they had after being 3 for 14 between... Uh, Williamson and Mitchell, but they pretty much blocked everything and didn't look to get off strike, didn't look to rotate the strike, get their two singles and over or three singles and over that may have got them going. Zampa got the last five wickets, five for 35, his first five in one day. Uh, it was just a really 
amazing sort of game where Australia should have been out, completely out for 120, and New Zealand should have got that standing on their head, and yet Australia ended up winning by 117 runs. Just absolutely ridiculous. Then you come to the third game, and this is after Aaron Finch has retired, and we can talk about that in a second. Uh, Josh Inglis came in, and Australia again with two for 16, uh, and pretty much, I think if I remember correctly, two for 20 off 12 overs. Smith and Labuschagne played it like a test innings. They didn't try to do anything stupid. They'd finally gotten in the head. Like Smith had done it in the previous game, but Australia finally got in the head. Well, we've got to see off this bowling, and we've got to see through to the middle overs, and that's exactly what Smith and Labuschagne did. Labuschagne made 52. Alex Carey then came out and made a runner ball, 42. Uh, Steve Smith ended up getting out for 105 of 131 balls, 11 fours and 1-6. But the beauty of that innings was that he just worked the ball around until he needed to start getting on with it. And that set the platform for Australia to be able to come out at the end and get to a decent total. So Smith got out at 4 for 203 in the 45th over. So in those last six overs, Australia put on 63 runs, which got them to a total that was over par. Maxwell made 14 off eight. Cameron Green, 25 not out off 12 deliveries with two fours and two sixes, batting at number seven. Here's the deal, and this is what I sort of spoke about on the last program, is that our five, six, and seven couldn't afford to have all of those all-rounders. We had to have someone miss out. Now, Stoinis missed out because of a side injury, and straight away, Carey at five, Maxwell at six, Cameron Green at seven. That looks so much better in that one-day team. Amazingly better. So New Zealand, apart from Bolt again, they just got smashed. And then when they batted, they tried to do what Australia did, and they the only problem was that they kept losing wickets at vital times. It didn't allow them the platform they needed to be able to get through at the end. 35 from Finn Allen, 21 Conway, Williamson 27, Latham 10, Mitchell 16, Glenn Phillips 47 off 53, really good innings coming to the team, Jimmy Newsham 36 off 34, Mitchell Santner 30 off 33. But they still fell 25 runs short because Australia's bowlers were good enough to just keep plugging away. And this is where it worked well. Cameron Green, 2 for 25 off 6, was partnered with Glenn Maxwell, 4 overs, none for 18. So their 10 overs went for, what's that, 43 runs for two wickets. Perfect. That's what Australia needs in that. Sean Abbott, brilliant again, two for 31 off 10. Uh, I just think that that was really interesting that like Sean Abbott came in and did such a good job and has the ability to score runs, not shown yet. Um, and obviously, uh, it was great for him to do that on home soil. So New Zealand lose this series 3-0 when... Certainly, they should have, I would have thought, won both of those first two games. But it's the mindset again, that they don't believe that they are good enough to beat Australia, and that Australia believe that they should never lose to New Zealand. And I honestly believe that it's the mindset there that is really driving those results. For New Zealand, because New Zealand have been so good against every other team. So good for Australia, New Zealand have got work to do.
So as we all know now, Aaron Finch has retired from one-day cricket and only one-day cricket at this stage. Now, I know that I've mentioned on a previous program that my belief is that he would go through to the end of the World Cup and then retire from all international cricket uh, and give space that way to choosing a new one-day captain, whatever. But he's chosen to do it now for the one-days. I don't, I don't know if that was to take the heat off his form going into the T20s now and the, and the T20 World Cup and whether he felt that, that, that he and the selectors felt that was the best way to go because surely he spoke to the selectors before he made the announcement uh, that he was going to retire from one-day cricket. It just felt to me that he could have just left that in abeyance until after the T20 World Cup, retired completely from international cricket because I still believe that he will retire from T20 cricket at the end of the World Cup, and just done it in one clean sweep, and then everyone could say, you know, say all the nice things about him that have been said this week from his terrific career. Uh, instead, we're going to get to the end of that T20 World Cup now, and we're going to have that again, and possibly with other players. You know, players like say Matthew Wade are likely to announce their international cricket uh, retirement at that stage. But back to Aaron Finch, and there's no denying that he has been a terrific white ball cricketer for Australia. I think he's the fourth highest number of one-day centuries for Australia, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that the world cricket now, with playing one-day cricket, has halved the amount of games that people play. You look at Ponting, who's played something like 372 one-day internationals, and Aaron Finch has played half of that. And yet he's been playing for Australia since 2012 or 2011. So it's a different world now as to how many one-day games are played because of the uh, onset of T20 cricket and trying to play so many more of those. So his career in that regard sets up really well, to be honest. And not only as a batter in the one-day game, and especially in that uh, 2015 ODI World Cup, victory. He was very good in that and, and was one of the main players for Australia in that. But the fact that after the Newlands debacle that occurred with uh, Smith Warner and and uh, the sandpaper gate and, and all that kind of thing, he had to come on and take an, a massive leap in a leadership role. Now, he'd been captaining Victoria before this. And so he had to come in and he was, a, he was appointed as the captain of the one-day team after Tim Payne initially took a squad to England where we were tranced 5-0 so he came on and he came on as the white ball captain for the T20s as well and for the one day team and then of course made his test debut and they picked him as an opening batsman even though every person in Australia including my wife knew that he would be better suited to batting in the middle order in test cricket but they decided to bat him as an opener and throw him to the wolves as such and the technical problems that he has had in recent times were seen in his test career that he was just unable to get over those. And that was disappointing that he didn't get a chance to bat down the order and give someone else the opportunity to open the batting and, and see how he would have gone because his leadership in that role in the test team could also have been terrific. But then came his one-day career and he continued on and he's, he's had his ups and downs, as we all know, uh, during the latter part of his of the suspension of Smith and Warner, uh, Finch's form was not at its best, 
and there were concerns about him leading Australia to the 2019 World Cup in England. But he came good uh, when they went to India, which was great. His captaincy has never really been in question. He's been one of the best tactical captains for Australia in the one-day game that we've ever had. And leading Australia to that 2019 World Cup and getting Australia to the semi-finals, which was beyond what anyone believed we could do. Even with the return of Smith and Warner, no one really believed that we could make the finals of that World Cup. And we did. And it was thanks to his batting, where he excelled, and also his tactical nous as a captain. Uh, and that is perhaps what he will be best remembered for, is his leadership of the Australian white ball team in the four years after all that crap that went on in South Africa. So it's disappointing for him to end the way he has as a player in regards to just <laughs> not being able to get a run at all. Uh, no one likes to see that happen to someone, but at least he took it on himself to retire himself and not be pushed by the selectors or have forced the selectors to drop him because he didn't deserve to go out that way. He deserved to go out as a winner, as he has in this three-match series. He deserved to go out preferably scoring some runs, which he did not. And that's all what part of cricket is, because there is no perfect farewell. They just don't happen. So, I guess in conclusion, a fantastic career for Aaron Finch. He's done the right thing by Australia by uh, giving the team clear air now as we go into uh, the next phase of the one-day international soon, leading up to next year's World Cup. And I don't think he'll be lost to Australia. He seems like the kind of guy who has a terrific knowledge of the game that would be very useful on a commentary panel that now doesn't have Shane Warne. I love to talk about footy, and I prefer to talk about uh, teams that I don't particularly like and ribbing them, given that the teams that I support seem to cop more ribbing than any others. How good has the AFL finals been? Like the first week where the 4-4 finals were just so fantastic and such brilliant football uh, and all the games went down to the wire. Uh, I thought it was just a terrific advertisement for for the AFL and uh, the teams that made that top eight. Now, all the teams that you would expect to win didn't win. The Premier's Geelong got over Collingwood by six points at the end, and of course they were jumping, thinking they they finally won a finals game. I think they've only won two or three finals games in the last ten years. Um, but they get the week off now, and they they get to see how they go this following weekend. Uh, we lost Richmond when Brisbane beat them, which was fantastic for everybody who's not a Richmond supporter. Uh, Melbourne lost to the Swans, which is great for everyone who's not a Melbourne supporter. Uh, giving us the Swans the week off and making Melbourne have to play an elimination final. And then Fremantle got up over the Western Bulldogs, which is good for anyone who believes that the Western Bulldogs premiership a few years ago was mostly decided by the umpires. So all of those games were just great games of football. Now, this weekend we had two further really terrific games of football and the right result in both, really, because Brisbane had to come down to Melbourne, to the MCG, where they hadn't won, or they'd won once in their last, I don't know how many games it was, 15, 16, 17 games. 
but they beat the reigning premiers to let, send them out in straight sets, which was just fabulous if you weren't a Melbourne supporter. The amazing thing about that was is that at the MCG that night, on Friday night, there was more support for the Brisbane Lions than there was for the home team, the Melbourne Demons. And all of that comes from the Brisbane Lions support base of the old Fitzroy Lions. Now, of course, the Brisbane Bears were the initial team in Brisbane, and they eventually merged with the Fitzroy Lions to become the Brisbane Lions. So that all that supporter base that Fitzroy had still had a team to support. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like they do, and they don't come out very often. But that other night, there was no doubt in the world that everyone there who wasn't a Melbourne supporter, they were a Brisbane supporter. Now, whether they were the old Fitzroy fans or Brisbane fans come down or just fans who had tickets who just didn't want to see Melbourne win, it didn't matter because the cheers were louder for the Brisbane Lions. And to be honest, this is a reason why the Kangaroos should probably move to Tasmania and become the, the well, not the 19th team that they, they want, but remain the 18th team and become the Hobart Kangaroos or the Tasmanian Kangaroos or whatever you want to call it. Just for the fact that they will still have that supporter base in Brisbane, but they can be an actual Tasmanian team. Now, no one denies that the Brisbane Lions are a Brisbane team. No one denies that the Sydney Swans are a Sydney team. But whenever they play in Melbourne, the old South Melbourne Bloods, all those supporters, they are still there supporting that team, even though it's got Sydney in the title and they're based in Sydney. So there's no reason why that can't occur for the North Melbourne Kangaroos moving to uh, Hobart as well and becoming the Tasmanian team and still keeping 18 teams in the comp. That's only a personal point of view, and it only came up now because of that support that happened on that Friday night with the the Brisbane Lions. And I thought that was quite telling, and that's something that I think probably should be taken into account. On the Saturday night, of course, Collingwood beat Fremantle. It was Collingwood's largest victory for some time and meant that uh, Collingwood supporters didn't have to have a heart attack all the way through the game for the first time in a number of weeks. And it sets up a really interesting final against the Sydney Swans this weekend because Collingwood's only lost two games in their last 13, I think it is, and one was to Geelong in that first uh, final, and the other was to Sydney at the SCG four weeks ago, where the Swans uh, outplayed Collingwood and out-enthused Collingwood in that game. It'll be interesting to see if Collingwood have learned from that and that coach uh, Craig McRae has come up with a way to get around what the Swans did to the Collingwood Magpies that night. That game sold out. It sold out in 10 minutes once the public tickets went on sale, so uh, there's no chance of me going to see it. I'll be sitting at home watching it on TV again, like everybody else. And it's I absolutely want Collingwood to win, don't get me wrong, but at least this year I know that there will be a team in the grand final that I actually can support again because I can support the Sydney Swans if they make it, so that's always good. And if Brisbane can possibly beat Geelong in that first final, then it'll be a point where I don't really care who wins, because it won't be Geelong. (laughs) Oh, well, when you talk about the NRL and the four finals that were played last weekend... um, there are some really funny moments from a supporter. Uh, 
the Friday night game obviously wasn't. <laughs> but uh, again, it's one of those things all season. Now, Penrith have been the best team all year. And if they don't win the comp this year, then it's either going to take an absolutely brilliant performance from a team to beat them or a mind-numbingly collapse from Penrith not to win or a refereeing decision or something like that because they have been the best team and they deserve to win. Now, I know that usually doesn't marry up to being the Premiers, but they are better this year than they were last year and they deserve to win. Now, against Parramatta on Friday night, at half time it was 7-6, and then Parra kicked the goal to go 8-7 in front just into the second half. When Parramatta played them uh, in the second round match, and they Penrith had uh, Nathan Cleary sent off, and they played with 12 men for most of the match, in the second half, Parramatta couldn't score against them. Penrith won the second half of that game. And that's been something that Parramatta have done for a lot of the year. They seem to score all their points in the first half and then really struggle to score points in the second half. And this happened again, because at 7-6 at half time they were only a point behind, then they were a point in front, and then Penrith just went away with it. And some were quick to say that, oh, Mitchell Moses went off the ground with concussion, and that stopped Parramatta in their tracks. Well, it shouldn't have if they were good enough, and they were just proven to be not good enough. Now, once again, we're going to get to a point this weekend. Parramatta now play Canberra in an elimination final. If Parramatta get knocked out... Again, we're going to have the same stories we've had for many years saying Parramatta can't win finals uh, and their record's terrible. Well, you know who else has a record like that? Geelong. And no one seems to ever bring that up. And yet, look at Geelong this year. Minor premiers, uh, they've won their first final. They're going into a final to play in the grand final again. They may lose that. Or they may make the grand final, they may lose that. But the point is that they're there every year. Now, Parramatta obviously would like to win a final, firstly, and Parramatta would like to make a grand final, secondly, and thirdly, they would like to win a grand final. But if they don't, then the year is not a complete dead loss again. Of course, they're losing some players at the end of the year that are fairly important in that team, but the basis of the team is still there. And other teams are going backwards a little bit, and maybe they're just hanging in there. And maybe that's just a Parramatta supporter trying to find excuses before this weekend in case it all goes a little car-car. No matter what, Penrith were way too good the other night and they should win this comp by a streak. Then you had the other three games, which in themselves were really interesting. I mean, Canberra's record against Melbourne in Melbourne, where they'd won their previous four and have now won their, their last five after this weekend, is somewhat surprising uh, and given that they have struggled all year and only made it into the finals because Brisbane couldn't win a game rather than than uh, Canberra being able to win all of theirs, which they did, but that still shouldn't have been enough for them to make finals. And yet Brisbane just fell over and couldn't win a game and let them in. And so now they've beaten Melbourne down there and Ricky Stewart's come out and said, oh, well, no one expects us to beat Parramatta at Bankwest and da 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 Well, no, they don't. And to be honest, Parra should whip their asses. So let's hope that happens. But the Melbourne side, as we all know, even last year there was questions about whether they could continue uh, or whether they'd be going backwards. And as it turns out, they've gone backwards this year. First time they haven't made the top four since 2014. But is that injury-based rather than performance-based? I reckon the turning point of the season was when Pappenhausen 
went down, and I can't remember who they were playing, but he'd, he'd scored a try himself, he'd set up two others, Melbourne were just on a tear, and then, bang, he uh, got injured, and he hasn't played since. And Melbourne haven't been the same since. That was the turning point of their season, when they were starting to come back, and it just didn't happen for them. Now, having been knocked out, uh, they've got a lot of their players leaving in this year, the Bromwich brothers are going to uh, Redcliffe. Uh, they're losing Brandon Smith to the Roosters. How is that staying under the salary cap? Uh, and, of course, uh, Munster's contract is up for renewal at the end of next year. So they've got a really tough job ahead to stay competitive next year for a start and then the year after still see if they have the same sort of squad, especially with Bellamy saying that he will re- be retiring from coaching at the end of next year as well. So, big change coming up for Melbourne, and to be honest, I don't think anyone's disappointed that they are out of the finals. Then we had the game at Shark Park, or Endeavour Field, or whatever you want to call it, uh, where Cronulla should have coasted home with 72 minutes to go. I think they were eight points in front. And then <laughs> we had lost a man to the sin bin because he decided to tackle a player without the ball, and I don't care what Nico Hines or anyone else says saying that that was a bit harsh. He was obviously taking the player out. It should have been a penalty try, not just a you know a penalty and a man off for ten minutes. It was it was absolutely should have been a penalty try, and I think they messed that up. But that probably would have done Cronulla a lot of good if it had just been a penalty try and they still had the man on the field. They probably would have held on the win by two points, but as it was, they didn't, and it went to thirty all, and they went to extra time. And then we had both sides of extra time and we're still level. So we went to golden point. And then Valentine Holmes kicks a bloody 45-metre field goal to completely silence the Sharks crowd and create lots of uh, laughter and mirth in the metal cavern where myself and Josh were sitting here having a lovely time thinking this is wonderful that they've lost. And why do I am I glad that Sharks lost? I don't know. <laughs> but they just seem so pompous and... Uh, they seem to have got you know the best coach running around who they've picked up, and they seem to be able to find a way to pick up the best three or four players they could get for their team, and they seem to do so well so quickly, and I don't like that. They should be shot down. What, the Cowboys have done the same thing? What do you mean? Oh, that's right. They got the coach they wanted, and he turned everything around, and they got a couple of players that they thought would do the job, and they have. So it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Ah, who cares? Bugger the Sharks. Go the Cowboys. And then, of course, we had the best game of the weekend. Not because of the game, because the game was just a complete farce. Uh, Not because several players got sent off to the sin bin, because there should have been several more. But just the fact that there's been this uproar about it all. And it's... I don't... I I could spend the next half an hour talking about it and giving my opinion on everything that happened... Uh, and my opinion on everything that's been said since the game finished by commentators, by players, by coaches, and by so-called experts on radio and TV. And, of course, I am a so-called expert myself, and my opinions vary between all of the opinions that have been given up. All I can say is this. I don't think there's any doubt that the first penalty that was given which was the clenched fist that was placed gently into the rib cage of the, the uh, player on the ground by Victor Radley, 
should never have been a sin bin. And that wasn't the referee's fault because it was the bunker that pulled that up and suddenly decided that he had to go. So that was really piss poor. I thought the referee had done everything right by stopping the melee and just starting play again. And if that had been allowed to go, do I think it would have been different? No, I don't. I still think we would have had the same problems going because that was just the nature of the game between these two uh, teams, the Roosters and the Rabbitohs. But that didn't help because, again, of course, a couple of minutes later, we had the, uh, the high shot on James Tedesco by Burgess. And to be honest, he was lucky to stay on the field. Uh, but it wasn't as bad as everyone made out, but it was certainly high. Tedesco, again, for some reason, when he's running and then just trying to step off his foot, lowers himself and gets himself in a position where he tends to get hit high. And there's always this uproar about it that, oh, we're trying to hit James Tedesco high. But if he ran up high, then the shot would have been probably around his chest. Now, it wasn't. So it was a high shot. And by the rules, he should have been sent to the sin bin. But he wasn't. And maybe that was the referee deciding, look, let's just cool it off a bit after the first one. You've had your one chance, and then we'll let's go. Well, two minutes later, Burgess did it again. And that tackle wasn't so bad because it was his arm that came off the ball into the head of the Roosters player. But he got sent to the sin bin because it was his second shot in a couple of minutes. So that was good refereeing. Well done. Off you go. Go get 10 minutes and and you uh, cool your heels. And then the second Rabbitohs player got sent off a minute later. So suddenly they were playing <laughs> with only 13 on 11. Amazing. And yet they still scored against that and they were in front, even though they had two players less on the field. Now, if you want to go through all the other sin-binnable offences, um, certainly I, they were all deserved. They all deserved to go where they went. The one that was missed, I think, was possibly uh, Jared Werera Hargraves on Cameron, Money, Cameron Murray slamming his head into the ground before he actually got sent off for doing it later on to Burgess. And that was one of the incident, incidences where Murray just got up on his haunches and just stared at Hargraves and he stared back and didn't play the ball, either refusing to play the ball or suggesting that he couldn't. Now, to me, that tackle where he actually, uh, Hargraves actually had his arm around Murray's neck and drove his head into the ground should have been a penalty and a sin bin of offence. Now, that didn't occur. It did occur later in the uh, Burgess incident. So I think that was something that was missed, uh, and that would have been interesting if that had come into play and that he'd done it again later on. But using that as well, now, Cameron Murray did that twice during the game, either refusing to play the ball or suggesting that he couldn't play the ball, which then held up play, and then the referee, of course, blew up, blew the whistle, and, of course, the bunker gets to look at it and decide whether there's a penalty or not, and the team gets a penalty. Now, strangely, in that instance, they just said, play the ball. I don't know what the bunker were looking at. But Latrell Mitchell did it twice as well, or more or less just laughing at some stage, saying, oh, no, I can't play the ball. I'm not going to play the ball. In fact, basically refusing to play the ball to make the referee blow it up and let the bunker look at it, and then the bunker gave penalties to Souths on both of those occasions. Now, this is something the NRL has got to stop. You can't have a situation where a player is basically refusing to play the ball in order to not milk a penalty, but to in order to get the bunker to have a look at something to gain a penalty in that way. 
it's somehow you've got to be able to take that out of the rules. Now, I don't know how they have to do that. Wasn't there a rule at the start of the year where, or last year, where if a player was injured in that and they couldn't play the ball, they had to go off the field for two minutes and someone else had to play the ball. And then they would be assessed for a head injury assessment or whatever it was, and the play would continue. Why hasn't that ever been used? I've never seen that actually being used. And that should have been the time on the weekend that it should have been used. Get Cam Murray, get Latrell Mitchell. You can't play the ball? All right, hands to your next person. Off you go for head injury assessment. You're off the field. You can't come back on for two minutes. Now, if the opposition score in that 10 minutes or something, or two minutes, sorry, well, that's too bad. Just don't do it. And if you actually can't play the ball, then the bunker will actually see something and then the bunker can call it up. But that's a really bad look. I don't like it. And it stuffs the game up by doing that. Um, and in a game that was played with the ferocity that was, where both teams were obviously just trying to niggle each other into making these kind of errors, um, that kind of stuff it was very hard to regulate. I understand that. Uh, and the concluding point in all of that, no matter which side you support, or if you don't support a side like me, is that the Roosters had enough chances to win that game. They probably should have won the game with the chances they had. But the the Rabbitohs were able to take their chances much better than the Roosters, and they were able to score from positions when they were down a player on the field, which shouldn't have been allowed to occur. And I'm if you listen to... Certainly Trent Robinson's uh, coach's press conference, he more or less said that straight up. He made no bones of the fact that they had their chances and that South took them and the Roosters didn't. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this weekend. Can South pull the same thing off against Cronulla and try and niggle them out of the game? Well, they're going to be down a few players because there's a couple there who aren't going to be playing this weekend from suspensions. But what an interesting, I suppose, round of football. And it's probably what came of it is more the controversy of what happened on the field rather than the skillful play of what happened on the field. And that was what the difference between the NRL and the AFL has been in the final so far. Let's see if this weekend can change that up a bit. That's all for today's edition of the Almanac Report. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll come back and check out further episodes down the track, right here on the podcast, Thoughts for the Metal Cabin. You have been listening to a Metal Cabin production.